Hello and welcome to Hallrender's Practical Solutions in Healthcare podcast. This episode is part of our ongoing series called Critical Considerations for Virtual Care and will be focusing on Medicare reimbursement for remote patient monitoring. My name is Chris Eats. I'm a shareholder here at Hallrender and a member of our firm's virtual care team. I'm joined today by my fellow shareholder, Regan Tankersley, who focuses her practice on Medicare reimbursement, both in the context of traditional in-person services, but also virtual care services uh, or telehealth services. Regan, thanks for joining us. Uh, Before we dive in, maybe uh, tell us a little more about your individual practice. Yes, thank you. I am in my 19th year of practice as a healthcare regulatory attorney focusing on Medicare and Medicaid payment issues and regulatory compliance. Great. Well, Regan, so a hot topic uh, in the realm of, of virtual care has been remote patient monitoring or remote physiologic monitoring, whichever term we want to use for for a number of reasons. It's one of those areas where we have seen some permanent change uh, already in the way of expanded reimbursement. It's certainly an area that seems to to mesh nicely with the the concept of clinical integration and value-based care. And of course, with technology and the advancements we see there, there's there's simply a, a lot out there that we can do to potentially manage patients uh, in a more efficient manner and in a more complete manner. So it is a it is a big topic, and 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 really the reason we wanted to kind of level set in terms of where we've been in the recent past and where we are today with uh, reimbursement, specifically Medicare uh, reimbursement. It's also one of those many areas that, that you and I have have discussed where we see competing definitions and, and concepts, right? So right. You, and I, you and I often talk about the, the, the need for healthcare providers to understand there's kind of the reimbursement side of the coin, all of the, the rules that apply to telehealth and, and, and other technology-based services that are specific to whether and how you, you can be compensated. And then, of course, there's the professional side of the coin in terms of whether you can use these technologies to begin with to, to render care. And if so, what do you need to do? So, so right. I mentioned that, right, because, of course, there are state to state different definitions and rules uh, in terms of uh, remote patient monitoring. We don't want to lose sight of the fact that that those concepts are out there and that we have to pay attention to them. But but of course, reimbursement is huge. It's traditionally mm-hmm. been the, the largest obstacle to providing these types of services. And so we, we, we did want to drill down more specifically on, on again, where we are and, and where we may be headed with, right. with reimbursement in this area. So so I'm going to stop there and, and mm-hmm. maybe Reagan ask you to comment on whether or not Medicare has a definition that is specific to, to RPM. So from a Medicare reimbursement standpoint, RPM services are going to be described by those certain CPT codes that Medicare developed a a payment rate for a few years back. I want to say 2018, but I know it's been within the last few years prior to COVID, prior to the public health emergency. So from my perspective, I like to make the, the distinction because we've seen a lot with the terminology between telemedicine, telehealth, virtual care. RPM services are paid for by Medicare under Part B. They are not true telehealth services as defined by the statute, by the Social Security Act that has a very narrow and discrete definition 
you know, an 1834M of the Social Security Act as to telehealth services, which are professional services rendered by physicians, mid-levels, eligible practitioners to provide those professional telehealth visits, consults, et cetera. RPM are not telehealth in that definition. You will not see those CPT codes listed on the Medicare list of covered telehealth services. They are just fee schedule-based services. I have to look into it on the hospital side, but on the physician fee schedule side, they're paid for under the physician fee schedule. There are certain CPT code descriptors to describe different components of RPM, whether it's the initial setup, whether it's the data collection, whether it's the, you know, the interaction between the, the healthcare provider and the patient. So I, I want to make sure people kind of understand that there may be some flexibilities during the public health emergency as to how RPM services can be provided and billed. But these services have been covered and paid by Medicare prior to the public health emergency. Got it. And that's, you know, that's an interesting point and an important point, right? Because many of the state definitions that, that I alluded to would capture RPM as, as a defined telehealth service or a defined mm -hmm. telemedicine service, depending upon what terminology the state uses. But as you point out, technically, uh, even though we think is uh, of RPM in a lot of ways as telehealth or, or telemedicine, technically, it does not fall within the definition of, of telehealth for purposes of Medicare. Correct. So why don't we kind of touch base briefly about where we are, where we were with RPM just prior to the pandemic, because mm -hmm. it was one of those areas in, in kind of the larger area of virtual care where we had seen some, some expansion. Why don't to, let's, let's just kind of touch base in terms of where we were initially pre-pandemic. Right. So because of the nature of those services, they're not a, an in-person visit with a Medicare beneficiary. So when Medicare developed payment rates to recognize that there's a benefit to being able to remotely monitor patients and certain physiologic parameters, height, you know, weight, blood pressure, all of those things that can be monitored remotely, um, because of that non-face-to-face -face aspect to it, there was a requirement that the patient had to be an established patient of the, the billing practitioner who was going to be providing and billing for the RPM services. And there had to be consent obtained prior to initiation of, the, of those services. Um, and those are all beneficiary protection measures because they're not there face-to-face -face with their practitioner. So it did require established patient and consent to be in place prior to uh, the public health emergency. There's been some flexibility because of COVID that Medicare is allowing during the public health emergency that the patient does not have to be an established patient prior to um, providing RPM services and that the consent for the RPM services can be given at the time of that initial contact with, with the patient. So those are the flexibilities that we've seen during COVID. There was also a flexibility related to one of the CPT codes that uh, required a certain number of days of data to be collected and reported prior to being able to bill for that, that code once every 30 days. There's been, been some flexibility there during the public health emergency as it relates to patients, beneficiaries with COVID or suspected COVID. So, so Reagan, pre-COVID, pre pre-pandemic, mm -hmm. was there flexibility to use RPM for both chronic care management and acute patient care? Or, or was I've, it only the former? I believe initially it was focused on chronic conditions, uh, but there's been some policy clarification since COVID and part of the interim final rule flexibility recognizing that RPM services can be provided 
for acute care, which is how you got that flexibility related to patients with COVID. That's an acute condition, not, not a chronic condition. And then there's been some policy clarification, I believe, moving forward that recognizes the, the utility and the value in those services, not just for chronic, but also acute. And then even pretty recently during the pandemic, this is this is one of the areas where we've, we've actually seen some permanent change, right? We had kind of mm-hmm. the rules pre-pandemic. We had some of the flexibilities that you you mentioned in response to to COVID, and then we we actually sit, saw some some permanent change uh, at the very end of 2020. What did that permanent change involve in terms of, yeah. of RPM flexibilities? So part of the interim final rule flexibility, um, as we noted, the consent and the established patient. So moving forward, Medicare has clarified through the traditional fee schedule notice and comment rulemaking that moving forward, the permanent changes after COVID will be that the consent that we had talked about before that had to be obtained prior to these services being initiated can be can be obtained at the time of the services being initiated. That is a new permanent policy change. But CMS also clarified that post-COVID-19, post-pandemic, it is going to have to be an established patient relationship to provide those RPM services. And so there's been um, some some clarification made, but you know, the one really permanent change that you know they recognized on, on the consent issue. And I think it's important to realize too, with remote patient monitoring, you know, patient services, there's lots of different devices that can collect data. I mean, my Fitbit collects all kinds of data, you know, heart rate and your oxygen saturation. But for purposes of these defined terms and CPT codes for Medicare coverage purposes, it has to be a type of device providing the data that meets the FDA definition of a medical device. And the data has to be sent automatically, collected and sent automatically to whoever the the practitioner is providing the RPM services. It can't be self-reported. So there's still some, it's not a free-for-all. I mean, there's still some coverage restrictions there related to the type of devices and the and the interaction that has to occur between the beneficiary uh, and the billing provider for the codes that allow for the for the communication part to be to be built. Gotcha. How many days per month does the, the device need to monitor and, and, and report data? It's at least 16 out of 30. Under normal conditions, again, there's that a limited exception during the public health emergency for patients with or suspected COVID that it can the you can collect data less than 16 days and so report that that CPT code that represents that uh, the data collection uh, part of the service. Okay, so it sounds like then post state of emergency, even with the permanent changes we've seen. The, the two areas that will revert back, so to speak, would be one, that that RPM must involve an established patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, two, the the, uh, uh, the the exception that you just mentioned related to COVID treatment obviously will not would not apply at that point. Correct. So do we have any indication, Reagan, in terms of where where we're headed next with with RPM, mm-hmm. do we expect that we will see more permanent change or maybe additional flexibility? Is there any in- intel on, on that piece? I think as uh, CMS continues to provide coverage and pay for these services, they'll continue to monitor and collect data um, as to the utility. I mean, obviously, I think the benefit of this type of data is that to be able to track patients for chronic and, and some acute conditions to hopefully provide for better health outcomes and to be able to treat patients sooner based on collecting that, that physiologic data that can be uh, transmitted remotely. 
it'll be interesting to see if there are permanent statutory changes made on the under the telehealth statute. For example, if going back to the original coverage for RPM services after the public health emergency, there has to be an established patient relationship. Well, can we establish that patient relationship through an initial telehealth visit? And part of that will go to, are we going to have some flexibility following a public health emergency yeah, to the geographic limitation? Um, that would really expand the ability to have that initial visit and establish a patient um, prior to, to establishing um, an RPM service for the program for those patients. Again, that'll depend on whether we see a statutory change uh, to the telehealth provisions. Uh, we're already seeing sort of these RPM companies pop up because part of the policy clarification with, with remote patient monitoring is that you can have you know, auxiliary staff performing these services, but under the Medicare Incident 2 regulation, services of auxiliary staff have to be directly supervised. RPM is a general supervision standard, and CMS has qualified, has clarified that you can contract with auxiliary personnel to provide the, the services. So we've already, we're already seeing RPM companies, you know, coming to physician practices with an RPM program to provide all of the technological support, all of the monitoring, and then providing the support then for the, for the practitioner or their staff to be able to do you know, the interactive communication, you know, parts of those services prescribed by that codes. So you might start seeing more of a little cottage industry pop up to be able to support it, to think about one sort of data center entity. And if we have some of these contract provisions for auxiliary personnel, and if we're not limited by, by a supervision standard, you know, considering what do we do, you know, in different locations, different states, I mean, there's, there's still some of those things to consider, but I can see that happening more as kind of coming to a physician practice with, you know, here contract with us, we can provide the services for you on, so you can provide them to your patient population. Interesting. Yeah. You know, we've, we've obviously seen a, a lot of activity legislatively, and we continue to see a, a high number of bills being introduced, most of them focused on, on, on reimbursement in the realm mm -hmm. of, of, of virtual care. We've also seen some legislation that, that's more specific to uh, increased funding. And um, worth noting, I think, that, that we've seen some of that legislation be specific to remote patient monitoring. Mm -hmm. I know very recently there was um, some, some legislation introduced called the Rural Remote Monitoring Patient Act, which, which mm -hmm. intended to or is intended to establish a pilot grant program to support RPM in, in rural areas. And so I think in addition to some of the, the, the rules themselves potentially changing, um, mm -hmm. it, there's, there's, there's certainly the possibility for some increased funding in this area as well that, that mm -hmm. healthcare providers should, should be mindful of. And you had mentioned, but just to emphasize, in terms of the, the actual technology, Reagan, that can be used, what, what's the threshold requirement there? So there has to be one for the, depending on the CPT code we're talking about, but for the data collection devices, there has to be, um, you know, meet that definition of a medical device and it has to be able to, you know, capture and collect data and send it automatically. But as far as the codes that actually capture the, the interaction between the patient and the billing practitioner, that ha that's described as an interactive communication. It has to be, you know, a conversation in real time. It's synchronous. It's, it's a two-way communication. And I believe a lot of that can be done. I mean, there aren't the restrictions um, you see under tele telehealth regarding, you know, video, 
but you can use video enhancements. I think there's another CPT code that can reflect some other types of services. Um, but it's definitely, you know, the data collection CPT codes have certain requirements and then the, the communication-based codes with that interactive, that, that'll have a set of requirements. And that's going to be, you know, defined by those, those CPT code the descriptors. Right. Um, and I would comment, too, if we're talking about payment, my sense, and we know this from some of the, the committee's uh, hearings that have been going on um, in D.C., that if we do see some increased flexibility under telehealth, I mean, it's going to be, it could be a domino effect. Like I just mentioned, if they end up changing the statute, removing the geographic restriction, well, now you can provide more of these uh, initial patient contacts via telehealth that open up the door to some of these other services like chronic care management and RPM. Will the fee-for-service system continue on? Or will there be some other methodology or mechanism to pay for some of these services? I feel like the Medicare fee-for-service system was meant to be reactionary, you know, you're, you're paying for medically necessary treatment for, you know, diagnosis or treatment for people who are already sick. And I think part of these initiatives with virtual care is trying to, um, you know, capture this patient population and data to help provide for healthier outcomes before they get to the point that they're really sick. And does the fee-for-service mechanism payment methodology really support that type of care? So that, I think that still remains to be seen. And going back to the earlier point that you made regarding the technology actually constituting a medical device, as simple as that sounds, um, we, we've, we've certainly encountered concerns or issues in uh, the employment setting or hospital setting where individual providers are, are seeking to use technology that kind of looks and feels like um, it's a medical device, but in reality mm -hmm. is, is not a medical device. And so, you know, even though fundamental, I, I think it's important uh, to be mindful of that, 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 that there's a, boy, right. there are millions of, of applications out there mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and technology as well and, and, and wearable devices, et cetera, that right. do not rise to the level of, of, of medical device. That's right. I also wanted to mention, you had pointed out one of the, the, the permanent changes in involving uh, the ability to, to uh, obtain patient consent at the time of service, which provides some, some helpful flexibility. Um, you, you and I field a lot of questions more generally about consent um, in, in the realm of virtual care. And, and so uh, I think it's also important with consent to keep two, two additional pieces in mind. One is, again, any state law specific requirements, right? So we're talking about consent, it, again, for purposes of, of, of Medicare reimbursement, but um, RPM may be captured by a state telemedicine act, which itself right. has particular requirements for documented consent. And so mm -hmm. need to remain mindful of, of those state law um, specific provisions. And then two, um, in a more healthcare provider specific context, quite often RPM is, is not the only service that, that you are providing uh, electronically, right? You, you, you may be, as you pointed out earlier, providing RPM in conjunction with other types of virtual care services. And so approaching the consent process more strategically and, and proactively in a way to check all boxes uh, and also in a way for the healthcare provider to obtain kind of a meaningful uh, and helpful consent uh, ahead of the time is, 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 is probably a good idea mm -hmm. and something right. that our providers should, should, uh, 
be mindful of. Well, and, and you raise a really good point between consent as required by state law, whether it's in regard to telehealth, telemedicine, or just consent to treat versus some of the specific Medicare coverage requirements for consent um, related to your ability to have coverage in both of those services, such as the RPM. And so those are two, um, sometimes we get those questions, well, which one, which one trumps the federal and state? We got to comply with both. I mean, I think that's just the important thing to remember is that if these certain services from a Medicare payment standpoint require a certain type of consent, you still have to comply with everything related to, to your state law. Um, and I think too, moving forward, I just read this article um, kind of on security and, you know, cyber attacks, um, attacking medical devices. I mean, that's something kind of out there as far as whether or not you're, what data devices you're using to collect data, but how are we ensuring from a cyber standpoint, the security of the data, making sure there isn't a way to like hack into patient accounts. And so all of that, you know, the more we do virtually, it's going to just raise that, that compliance and risk level of how we're making sure all this type of data and patient contact and information that's being done virtually is, is going to be protected. Absolutely. Well, Regan, hey, thank you very much for your insight uh, to our audience. Thanks for joining us. Uh, if you or your organization have any questions uh, or topics that you would like to share with us, please contact us uh, via our website at paulrunder.com. Certainly feel free to reach out to me at ceeds at paulrunder.com uh, or Regan particularly if you have questions specific to, to reimbursement in this arena. Um, Reagan can be reached at rtankersley, R-T-A-N-K-E-R-S-L-E-Y, at paulrender.com. As always, please remember that uh, the views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants only and do not constitute legal advice. Thanks so much for joining us.